Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It is the question, Paul, facing the bond market today, which is how much does the Fed's balance sheet roll off really affect markets? And frankly, there are people lined up on all sides of the issue uh, debating fiercely. Uh, and a way in here is David Kotak. I'm very pleased to say joining us at our Interactive Broker Studios, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors. Uh, David, you spared yourself uh, beautiful weather in Sarasota to come here in frigid uh, New York City. Thank you for, for joining us here. So what's your take on this? How important has the Fed's balance sheet roll-off been so far? Well, uh, very important. Pleasure to be with you. I'm leaving tomorrow morning and going back from the five-degree New York weather as fast as I can. <laughs> so it, 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 this is the, perhaps the most profound debate monetary policy. Never before have we seen a major central bank change an in interest rate and shrink its balance sheet simultaneously. So we're in an experiment. Nobody's been here before. And we're doing it in very large sums. So you got to look at a balance sheet. And as you know, you got two sides of a balance sheet. You have the asset side. In this case, it's now got long-term and intermediate-term and mortgages, all federal credit, but that's the asset side. And the asset side of this balance sheet for 50 years never looked like this until the financial crisis. It's the liability side where the debate needs to be held. The, the liability side of that balance sheet, bank reserves, excess bank reserves, four or $500 billion to operate the Treasury of the United States, a few small items, currency in circulation will be $2 trillion by the end of next year, and what do you do about the alternative to bank reserves, repo? And that is a debate. So the bottom line of that complex stew is you can get a range of $3.5 trillion high to $2.5 trillion low as to the proper size of the balance sheet and debate all sides of it. How do you think the Fed has done in terms of managing the wind down of the balance sheet and then if you have an opinion, where do you think they should go? Uh, well, should is always a difficult word. How have they done? They attempted to communicate what they're going to do. They published a schedule and, and said, here's how we're going to do it. Here's the amount. Here's the timetable. We're going to scale it up slowly. So the Fed tried to communicate that. What they didn't communicate and haven't clearly is here's the end game here's what it has to look like when we're done and here are the metrics which will cause us to change so you have this divided opinion within the fed communicated therefore in a confusing way and i think that's what's needed i hope pal tomorrow is questioned and questioned and questioned on these metrics so he explains them, and he may have a divided house, which will make it very difficult for him. So, David, I'm looking right now uh, by the numbers. The Fed's balance sheet had a high of $4.5 trillion, or nearly that, in April of 2017. It's currently a little bit more than $4 trillion, so a little bit less than $500 billion reduction in the balance sheet over those uh, nearly two years now. 
you make a really important point that the balance sheet kind of cannot shrink below two and a half trillion dollars based on just the currency that we have standing in circulation right now, as well as some of these other obligations. Uh, you know, how much of an effect would it be if the Fed stopped it at three and a half or, or two and a half trillion? I mean, is that, is that sort of a, a seismic difference? Uh, I, I think so. So I think one, the Fed doesn't know how the market expectation is changing because of the size of the balance sheet. It's guessing. Two, what's the hurry? Why are you in such a rush to take the balance sheet down only to have to start to take it out up in the future? As Bernanke pointed out, it naturally will grow at the rate of $200 billion a year. So if we go down, we're going to be going up soon. What's the big deal? Slow it down. Take your time. You're in an experiment, and you're playing with fire because you're playing with the credit markets of the world and the U.S. economy. What's your hurry? Well, how much do you think the, the Fed right now is, is focusing on or weighing the geopolitical issues in China and Europe and Brexit and how that impacts their policy? Or are they really just focused on more, more internal data? Well, they always have to put the U.S. economy first, but how do you possibly set policy in this list that you just articulated? It's so difficult to do. Imagine that meeting when you're going to go around that table twice. The first round is going to report on all the influences of the world. You're going to see them in beige book reports. You're going to see them in data. You're going to be in the midst of shutdown issues, trade war tissues, issues, tariffs, all at once. And you've got to go around the room twice. And you've got two, three, four minutes each for people sitting around a table who then have to conclude a policy statement. And in between, they've been negotiating in between meetings to get to it. It's incredible. And now they all bring in 100 staffers from 12 reserve banks plus the Board of Governors, and they have diverse models and opinions, and none of them work. That's where we are. <laughs> That's where we are. None of them work. David Kotak, David's chairman, chief investment officer from Cumberland Advisors based in Sarasota, Florida, where he is... Very much looking forward to returning to tomorrow as we uh, look to enter into the polar vortex here in New York. Uh, so, David, we're about maybe a third or halfway through earnings. Is What are some of the themes that you've taken out of here as you think about your portfolio? Any themes that have been kind of caused you maybe to rethink a little bit where, where you're positioned? Well, we're, we're an ETF shop, not a single stock shop. But we look at weights within the ETF space. For example, this week, XLE has the largest percentage component reporting the energy sector. So you look at the ETFs because you look at the contents. Earnings, cross-currents, shutdown, anticipation of shutdown. Tariff, you saw it with Harley. You see this constant flow of this crazy narrative world we live in impacting with surprises in all directions. And you say, what is normal? Where is a trend? How do we stabilize the earnings? I think if we can get to the second quarter of this year and we don't have another shutdown and we make a trade deal of some type or the trade truce continues, we will begin again to see the earnings power of American companies in a more stable environment. And without that, we're guessing so I'm not surprised by the volatility of the reporting. I'll give you our numbers. We see about 170 
or so for this year for the S&P 500 index, but there's a band around that, and we see a higher number in 2020. We don't see a recession, and that's how we're basing a market overview level. So I guess that then I was going to ask, you know, are stock investors too optimistic or too pessimistic right now about the U.S. economy? Yes. Sounds, yes, right. I mean, <laughs> I, th- I think that you answered it with a sense of we're just guessing. So then why shouldn't investors just sit on their hands? If you think interest rates are going to go substantially higher from here, then you might say, wait a minute, my cash is going to earn more. I'm worried about valuation mechanics. I'm going to have to value against a 4% treasury instead of a 3% treasury or whatever. I don't see it. And I don't see the forces that make that happen. They may make it happen five years from now. We have a large deficit that's going to compound. But for the next two or three or four years, it's not a shock. So without a shock, you say, what are the shocks? Trade war is the biggest shock. The two giant economies of the world, China and the U.S., are embroiled in a brouhaha. Let's get it over. Let's have the truce extend. Both sides want to make that happen. If that happens, business gets better. Sentiment improves. We all will like it, and stock markets will go higher and reflect it. So what do you think? I mean, if you just put December versus January and, you know, just the volatility of December in particular on the downside, and I know in your experience, you've experienced volatile markets before. Do you think the market just overshot itself on the downside in December and, you know, the 5 or 6% increase we're seeing in the S&P this year is just trying to get us back to a new normal? Because if you think about that, no, late November, December period, it was the volatility was just breathtaking. I would think so. You know, the Christmas Eve massacre was the bottom. Was it the bottom? It certainly was a climactic bottom, and we have recovered from it more or less. So now we're back, and you take the V out of the bottom and say, let's look at where we are. We look like we're on trend for around $170 earnings. That's a guesstimate, but a close one. It seems to be on track. How would you value the S&P 500 index if it's got 170 boxes earnings? It's cheap. It's not expensive. So the idea of U.S. equities rallying, is that predicated on the idea that U.S. bond yields stay low and stay around where they are right now? Stay close to where they are right now. If you think the the 30-year Treasury bond is going to be 4.5 instead of 3, you don't want to own the stock market. If you think cash is going to earn 3 or 3.5, you don't want to own the stock market. What's the threshold? What's the tipping point? Well, I don't know. 3 is sort of a magic kind of number that everybody kicks around, and we kick it around too. When we get there, we'll find out. <laughs> do, you think the Fed has it, do you think the Fed has the capability to kind of engineer a I guess soft-ish landing in that 2.5% range, which will support a lot of the forecasts and, and earnings estimates that, that are out there? Oh, my gosh. Everybody's – that's the question. Can they do it? The record of the Fed is mixed at best, poor under certain circumstances. And when they try to do two things at once, which is what they've been doing, balance sheet shrink, raise interest rates, simultaneously they're trying to do two things. They can't get one right, let alone two. <laughs> if the Fed stops raising rates – and if the trade war is sort of eased, how much longer does this credit cycle have before it We turns? could have years. We could have years, Lisa. We don't have 
high inflation upward pressures. As long as we have low inflation, low rates, gradual recovery, 200,000 kind of job number, unemployment rate low, below what we used to think about, these kinds of this cycle could go on for years. It would be the Fed overshoot that could kill it or ratcheting up tariffs and full-blown trade war could kill it. Those are the two killers in my view. David Kotak, wonderful having you on. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for warming up my day. Oh, good luck getting back to the warm haven of, uh, of, of, of sunshine in Sarasota, Florida, which is very appealing to me right now, considering what the temperature is in New York City. David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors, and certainly the optimism is being felt in markets today. A, a, a sort of risk-on day for sure, at least in the Dow, not so much the NASDAQ ahead of those earnings down four-tenths of one percent. So uh, again, all eyes on Apple and on the big tech giants. Another day, another most important vote ever for Brexit. Joining us now, Therese Raphael, I am very glad to say, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, uh, coming to us from London. Therese, there is a vote uh, in Parliament today, and you had some scathing words for it uh, in your recent column that was titled, Had Enough of Brexit? How About 10 More Years? So, Therese, what are you expecting? What's at stake today? And uh, how much should we pay attention to this vote? Well, yet again, we're all sort of at the edges of of our seat waiting to see what Parliament decides to do. And yet again, what comes out of this vote uh, doesn't tell us very much about what kind of Brexit we're going to get, when we're going to get Brexit, or very much of anything else. So basically, the Prime Minister uh, has now thrown her weight behind one of the seven amendments that uh, Parliament will be voting on. And uh, she has, she has indicated that she would like Parliament support to go back to Brussels and reopen the deal that she's previously said cannot be reopened and that took nearly two years to negotiate. So what's really happening here? Um, th- this is the government trying to reduce the size of the division within its own party and within Parliament in an attempt to go back to Brussels and say, OK, right, you've been asking us what do we really, really want? And now we're telling you what we really, really want is a change to this Irish backstop, this provision that keeps the border open but ties the UK into a long-term uh, customs union potentially uh, with the EU. And so Theresa May, having you know been roundly defeated in her deal, is now trying to get some kind of uh, unity or at least a, uh, to reduce the size of the disunity in Parliament so she could try to put more pressure on the EU. But we're, what we're not going to get from tonight's vote is uh, a clear sign of what Parliament wants. We may see none of these amendments pass, and I don't think we're going to get anywhere close to a sort of conclusion to this Brexit saga. We're going to have to come much closer to the March 29th exit date uh, before we get any more clarity. So, Therese, you know, it's I keep thinking about the European Union, and I'm not sure if it's rhetoric, a negotiating tactic, or whether they're really serious, but they have been adamant that they are not going to renegotiate this deal. How do you view their rhetoric? Is that, in fact, yeah. should we take that at face value, or do you think that is more of a negotiating tactic? Well, 
you know, I, I think the it's it's serious on a number of levels. The Irish uh, border issue is one that the EU takes extremely seriously, and it's one that Ireland takes extremely seriously. And for all the um, argument that you get from the UK, particularly from Brexiters who say, look, this is really a non-issue. If they really want to, they can just, you know, they can scratch it out, put it in the future political declaration. You do not hear that in the EU. You do not hear that in Ireland. Today I was speaking to uh, the CEO of Enterprise Ireland, which looks after Irish exporters. And, you know, I asked her, well, look, if push comes to, slu- to shove, won't these, won't the CEOs of these exporting companies say, please, please get rid of that backstop so that we can get a deal? And she said that she had not heard from a single one of them anything close to that, that they all understand the backstop's important. That ended, uh, the, that, that is there to support the Good Friday Agreement, which was a 1998 uh, agreement that ended uh, a quarter century of, of, of violence and uh, conflict in Northern Ireland. And nobody wants to experiment with what happens if you start putting border infrastructure back. So I, I think the EU uh, has room to maneuver. I'm not saying that there's nothing that the EU can give, but it's not going to be a wholesale plucking out of that, that controversial backstop, putting it in the, the trash can and saying, okay, guys, you know, we understand this is hard for you. We'll give you what you want. It's, it's not going to go that far. Therese, I think a lot of investors and analysts would agree with you that one thing is certain with Brexit, and that is that it will be a big muddle for a long time and that we're not going to get resolution anytime soon. What does that do to any leader, Theresa May, uh, Theresa May, yeah. uh, you know, her successor, etc., trying to sort of herd cats here, uh, get some sort of agreement? What does that do to their negotiating power with the European Union, given the fact that everybody knows this is just going to be an ongoing muddle for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the key question here. That's what we all miss when we get caught up in the sort of drama of you know the vote. It does two things. First of all, the 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 European Union knows that this is not the last negotiation. It knows that it's going to be entering into a series of negotiations over everything from you know financial services to uh, certifications, non-tariff barriers, uh, goods. You, you name it, the whole panoply of, of trade relations, uh, security relations, all of that is going to be negotiated for years to come. The EU is not going to want to just roll over on a key red line right now, knowing that that could set a precedent. Uh, the other thing that this uh, signals is that you know, Britain is, is, you know, the whole world knows right now is incredibly divided on this issue. The two main parties are divided on this issue. And because we're going to now have negotiation after negotiation after negotiation, no matter what Brexit outcome we get, uh, this signals that, that that a lot of this is going to play out in the public. It's going to play out in the, the very robust British media. And that is going to most likely weaken the hand of any leader who's going to, to get criticism from all sides. So the EU understands that. It will want to try to ease the path here so it's not blamed. At the same time, uh, it, it needs it needs to, uh, to to stand firm because there are more negotiations to come. So, Therese, what I'm not hearing in the rhetoric over the past couple of days, and I didn't hear it in some of the opening statements today in Parliament, is the second referendum. That seems to have lost a lot of momentum. Where do you think that is as an option? Yeah, well observed. So the second referendum was all the rage a few weeks ago. It has really died down as something people are talking about and talking up. I, I don't think it's gone away. I think if uh, if if other pathways fail, that it's still there. The 
uh, one of the amendments uh, sponsored by Yvette Cooper seeks to uh, force Parliament to extend Article 50 with a view to putting it to a people's vote, as as proponents of a second referendum call it. I think you know the Prime Minister really doesn't want that. The Labour Party leader really doesn't want that, and it's very hard to see it happening when the heads of the two major parties, you know, quite clearly don't want it to happen. Therese, just real quick here, how much more time does Prime Minister Theresa May have? Uh, probably till mid-February. Uh, that's, I think that's the uh, sort of end of what the, uh, the hard line in her own party will give her. And then she's got to come back and say what she wants to do. And then we'll start to see some, some votes that will probably matter a lot more than tonight's. And just quickly, Therese, the no, no Brexit, that does seem to be off the table. Is that your read as well? Uh, no Brexit at all is not off the table oh, no. yet. Neither is no deal. I, you know, sorry to disappoint, but all options are still there. If it goes to a second referendum, which we've, as we've just said, it might, uh, people could vote to remain. Very good. Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor covering European politics and economics for Bloomberg, calling in from the London Bureau, giving us some great color on what is a very you know, fluid story. It's a long playing story. It's a it's mess. A, it's a mess. Thank you. I'm just looking at our monitor here of our the members of parliament kind of going back and forth and how long they've been uh, doing that. And it just, you know, as Two Therese years. says, it's, you know, even if you get something, you got another 10 years or of just kind of negotiating uh, all types of side deals here. So, you know, we'll stay on top of it as we always do. Also focused in Washington, D.C., we're expecting trade talks at this point, at some point between the U.S. and China. But a U.S. court has gone after Huawei uh, to accuse them criminally of some of their actions. Joining us now to talk about this is Ann Stevenson Yang, co-founder and research director at J Capital Research, also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. And thank you so much for being with us. This seems like a very big deal because it seems like the U.S. is going after on a criminal level, uh, the biggest or one of the biggest China technology companies. Can you give us a sense of what the charges are and whether they are politically motivated? You know, there, there, are, two different, um, there, there are two different sets of charges. One has to do with uh, Huawei's evasion of U.S. Uh, sanctions on Iran and other countries, and the other one is an indictment in uh, Washington state for Huawei's attempts to steal technology from T-Mobile. And I would say that the latter, which has gotten less attention, is, is kind of more and is, is not related to the uh, case of, of Meng Wanzhou, who's being held in Canada. Um, I would say that one is is more interesting. And if you read the indictment, it's really damning. I mean, you know, Huawei actually giving bonuses to employees to incentivize them to steal technology from American companies, Uh, Huawei guaranteeing employees in writing that they wouldn't be punished if they if they broke U.S. laws. I mean, it's, it's pretty it's pretty damning. So is it politically motivated? I mean, you, you do have to say that the there's been a sea change in, uh, in, in the political view of China and, and companies like Huawei in Washington and probably in other capitals as well. But, you know, is this, are these indictments justified by the law? Absolutely. So they're justified by the law. But from the Chinese perspective, I mean, what is your sense as to 
how this particular issue, the Huawei issue and the, the press that it's receiving, to what extent do you think that will in fact impact uh, the trade talks between the U.S. and China? Well, I, one of the interesting things about all of this is how, how China has gone absolutely ballistic on this um, and how they've, um, you know, detained uh, three Canadians because Canada, you know, in, in trying to pressure Canada not to extradite uh, Meng Wanzhou, who's the um, uh, a, a C, CFO of, of Huawei and the daughter of the Huawei founder. Um, and, uh, you know, including it in the trade talks and how all the, the Chinese public commentary is all like, oh, the U.S. and Canada are just trying to uh, crush China and put us down. So any pretenses of having this be, a, uh, be called a private company have just been dropped. So what does that say about just sort of the broader fight for tech dominance between the U.S. and China? You know, what does it say that China seems to be doubling down on its support of Huawei and making this more political while not really necessarily addressing the main complaints? And what does it say about the U.S. that they're continuing to go after this even while they try to come to some kind of trade resolution? Well, you know, I think that that's actually the appropriate path for the U.S. Um, I think what's not appropriate is this big focus on the trade deficit, um, which actually, you know, ironically during all of this uh, discussion and, and these trade talks has been rising sharply and had the biggest trade deficit uh, for, for the U.S. with China in history was last year. Um, so I think that part is misguided. But the uh, the focus on technology and evading U.S. law, I think, is, is really quite overdue. So, um, yeah. As for technology competition, you know, I've never really seen that argument. The problem with with Chinese uh, tech companies is is precisely the problem that that is kind of um, evinced by the, by this uh, this this Huawei indictment uh, w over the T-Mobile case, which is that if you put all of your energy and focus into stealing technology, you don't develop new stuff yourself. And, you know, Huawei has some of the most talented engineers in the country. They have a culture of really, really hard work. They get really highly educated people. They incentivize them. And then they just, like, steal technology. And Stevenson Yang, thank you so much for that insight on what is a you know a very complex uh, issue, uh, made even more complex with some of the legal issues that Huawei is facing here in the U.S. That was Ann Stevenson Yang, co-founder and research director at J Capital Research. Uh, Ann is also a Bloomberg opinion contributor, uh, and Ann is based in Washington D.C. and Hong Kong. So. We'll have to see. Um, I think what we're going to find is that these negotiations are going to, uh, I think, be very, very difficult. I think there is, in fact, going to be a, a political uh, uh, tinge to them. And that's kind of at least what we're seeing in some of these uh, recent events. Well, Apple reports earnings after the close eagerly awaited, but let's face it, the tech's Earnings season has not started off very well. Both Intel and NVIDIA reported disappointing results, and more importantly, their outlook was not much better. So let's, let's kind of dive into it a little bit. We're fortunate to have, once again, our good friend Shira Oviday, uh, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, here with Lisa and myself in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Shira, uh, this is, as it is every quarter, Apple's uh, earnings, you know, I think very much anticipated, in large part because people are trying to get a sense of 
Boy, where is what's the next step for Apple? They pre-announced earnings, uh, weaker earnings for the first time in forever. Uh, what do you expect to hear from the company this, this afternoon? So I think there there are two things that I'm going to pay attention to. One is the forecast. Apple doesn't forecast for the full year, but they'll give a forecast for the March quarter, and I think that's really going to set the tone not only for Apple this year, but for the rest of the technology industry because the forecast will give us a little bit of insight into. What is really happening? Is is there, as I believe, a kind of secular change in the smartphone market where all the growth is gone and Apple is just going to have to contend with, you know, two thirds of their revenue is coming from a secularly declining industry? Or is there something else that Apple thinks is going on, temporary weakness in China or other places? And the other thing is, will Apple say anything substantive about what they're doing to offset some of these revenue weaknesses in iPhones? So I guess one one question that I have is, how much is Apple representative of the broader smartphone industry, of big tech, and how much is Apple really an idiosyncratic story that has to do with where they price their iPhone X, uh, that has to do with their appeal for luxury consumers and kind of their their missteps in China. I'm going to cheat and say that Apple is both. They are representative. That is cheating. I'm sorry, Lisa. <laughs> they are representative of the smartphone industry, again, because you have this phenomenon where uh, a majority of people in the world now have a smartphone and they're replacing them less often. And so that affects new device sales. And that's happening not only for Apple, but for every other smartphone manufacturer out there, particularly those like Apple that are focused on, you know, relatively affluent consumers in the developed world. So, um, so there is both a, a kind of smartphone industry read on Apple as well as a kind of Apple specific given the corner of the market where they concentrate. So one question that people have started to ask them is, does it make sense for Apple to do something unusual for the company and that's start to lower their prices in order to get into markets like India, for example, which has been a high growth smartphone market, one of the few pockets of growth in the smartphone industry. But their Apple's iPhones are not competitively priced in India, and the same is true in China. And so will Apple be more aggressive with prices? And they, they really haven't shown that in the past, a willingness at all. Like China is probably a great example. So in, in terms of, gee, we, but you think about the Indian market where they are essentially nowhere. Have they ever talked about, all right, we are going to strategically make a change and bring in a mid-priced or low-priced uh, phone? Not really. I mean, if you recall a couple of years ago, a few years ago, Apple released the iPhone SE, which was more of a mid-market price phone. And that has been a device that they've pushed in places like India. Although the, even the iPhone SE is still too expensive for India. And, and look, I will say that I think it's debatable whether Apple needs to compete on price. They have done some select price cuts uh, kind of under the covers in, in China, for example. Um, but Apple has never been a company that has tried to get all the market share in the world, right? They've been content selling a relatively sm relatively small fraction of the world's uh personal computers, for example, but they still have a majority of the, the share of revenue in the personal computer industry because the, the Macs they sell are um, high prices. So if Apple is content to do that in smartphones, maybe it should set that out as a strategy instead of letting people guess what the heck Apple is trying to do.
All right, so we have Apple sort of setting the tone for the media-intensive tech side, big tech, uh, later today. We have already gotten, though, the data from Intel and NVIDIA. And I'm wondering, what's your big takeaway other than bad? (laughs) I think bad is my big takeaway. (laughs) Um, I think... I think it remains to be seen. You pointed out that Apple is a little bit of an idiosyncratic company, at least as we think about the rest of big tech, right? So my question for um, that came from Intel and NVIDIA is one reason that those companies gave for relatively weak financial results was their biggest customers um, for computer server chips, which are, you know, the kind of high-end um, super-powered computers that are used by the big internet companies like Google and Amazon and so on, those com- those customers are taking a bit of a pause in, in buying chips for their data centers. And the question is, is that a temporary pause? Uh, because they pre-bought a whole bunch of computer chips and are now kind of working through that? Or do those companies see there's some growth hiccups on the horizon? Maybe we should pare back our supplies, our purchases of the raw materials for our internet networks. And so that's something that I'm going to be listening for from Amazon and Google and Facebook for the rest of this year is, are they seeing signs of weakness in their growth and that's being reflected in their orders to companies like nvidia and intel yeah that's i i I think that's a critical issue that you uh, shira wrote an article a column two days ago about you know the canary in a coal mine these these chip makers and what does that mean for the big tech story you know i think my question is you know and when we think about the some of the biggest growth areas uh, uh, in tech over the last five six years has been the cloud and the question that i'm wondering is if have we seen peak cloud um or, or is again, is it is that something structural, or is it something that's just temporary? And, and I'll tell you, if if it is structural, that is a seismic shift for the entire tech ecosystem. Are you, are you hearing any of that, or seeing any of that? I'm not. I'm not. I, I think from all that we've seen, there there is an imperative for companies to continue to spend on. Um, on pushing more of their digital information into these cloud computing services. I still wonder what happens if we get um, a global recession or a recession in in some parts of the world. Um, I think there's a belief that the cloud is not going to be affected by that because there are financial imperatives, some financial savings for moving things to the cloud. I just don't know if companies are going to be willing to do those kinds of information technology projects if we do see signs of um, of economic hiccups. And so I think that is a big question, the the peak cloud question. And there's also, of course, uh, the question of car makers, right? Will they simply cut costs by not investing as much in the sort of tech side, the chips, and buying as much of those types of uh, issues? So really, um, a lot of an intersection of a lot of different industries kind of coming together that we're going to find out uh, some insight into after the bell today, tomorrow, and in the upcoming days. Shira Ovide, thank you so much for being with us. As always, Shira Ovide is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering all things tech. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.